Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. First in the list today is KDE Plasma Workspace. No, sorry, just Plasma Workspace in the KDE uh, package set. Plasma-workspace-5.whatever. This, interestingly, when you think of the Plasma desktop, or if you don't think of the Plasma desktop and you think of the KDE desktop, because a lot of people do, although technically it is Plasma desktop, that's the proper name for it by the KDE community. It, when you think of it, though, you're actually thinking in terms of deliverable packages, probably, of Plasma-Workspace. That's the, the real front-end kind of user-facing interface components that you're probably actually thinking of. This is interesting to me because, like so many people, before they drop into open source and, and Linux, I used to think that a desktop was a complete application, and I, it never occurred to me, I mean, a lot of desktops are a complete application, but it never occurred to me the division of, shall we say, labor. You don't really think of that menu being its own little program. That's not an application. That's an application menu, but it's not a whole application in itself. Well, actually, it kind of is. You don't think of the panel as something as 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 something that that could be executed on its own. And these little bits and bobs of the desktop, that's when you put them all together and give them a certain theme, then it becomes the plasma desktop. Now you have a desktop. It's really cool to see all the different components listed in the package contents. There aren't really that many. I don't think this is all of them by any means. Um, I think there are other components that you might think of when you think of the KDE Plasma desktop. For instance, Dolphin isn't here. That's not part of the, the Plasma desktop sort of component set. It's its its own app. It is its own application. I mean, many of these things are their own application as well. Anyway, it's different. It's in a different package, different code set. This th These are the the, the parts of the interface that kind of give you the modern conveniences, a lot of the modern conveniences, of what we consider a desktop. And so naturally, the first one I'm going to mention uh, is esoteric and can't really be observed. Well, that's not true. It can be observed. Uh, you go to, well, it's G menu, D bus menu, proxy, all one string in user bin. So this is in the package list, the, the very first executable user bin, G menu, D bus menu, proxy. When I first read that, I thought, okay, well, it's a GNOME menu or something like that. Um, no, it's global menu, dbus menu proxy. So this is a little hook, and, and I don't know exactly where in the uh, the execution order or the pipeline where this sits, because I didn't bother looking at the source code of the actual... Well, I didn't... I did bother looking at it. I didn't look at it with an eye to... to completely understand where where it's happening but um you can you can look at it it's it's in the plasma workspace repository within the kde work um the kde uh git repository so it's um it's g menu debus menu proxy so it it kind of sits in this spot where if you want a global menu and i'll get to a i'll i'll talk about what that is exactly in a moment. If you want that, then this thing can be leveraged to kind of intercept calls out to a menu bar such that that menu bar is uh, either extracted from or m at least mirrored at the top of your screen at all times. And depending on what application you have selected as the active uh, application that changes what that global menu displays. In in short, this is the macOS menu bar. If you're not used to macOS, then you may not know, but you you may know that the the macOS design has a single panel across the top of its screen with a a set of menus and 
those menus reflect the application that the, the currently active application. A long time ago, this made a lot of sense because you could only have one application open at a time on old, old Macintoshes. So having a, a quote unquote global menu just kind of made sense. When it got multitasking or, 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 you know, more than one application, whatever they called it at the time, then I guess someone somewhere along the line said, uh, made, made the decision that when you switch to application A, then this menu bar at the top of the screen will apply to application A. When you switch to application B, then the top menu applies to application B. But visually, it's the same bar. It's just that the menu selection changes. Now, as I recall, and this could be a false memory, but as I recall, in the early days of Macintosh, like, the only applications really. Uh, there, you know, there just weren't that many applications, and it, it, and Apple had a, a pretty tight reign on, on what applications were available for Mac and how they got written. That's not to say that Apple was the only vendor of software for the Mac. That's not correct at all. But I, I, I got, I get the impression looking back that it probably, I mean, you, you know, you, in order to develop for Mac, you, you had to sign up for, for its developer program. So you, you, I think you got access as you do today. Uh, you get access to SDKs and libraries and things like that. So I, I'm imagining that back, way back then, I, I believe that those, that menu bar didn't really change. Like it was always, as I remember, an Apple logo, a file, an edit, uh, probably, I don't know, window and about, something like that. You know, some, maybe a couple more, but you know, that, it, it, you didn't have that much of a variation in just the top level selections. I, I, this could be wrong. And, and even if it's not entirely wrong, I think, think it's probably mostly consistent. They're just applications back then, just they, we, they weren't that complex. So I, I feel like you, you only had a certain number of top level menu options anyway. And so I, I feel like you, that global menu bar didn't even have to change that much when you switched between application A and application B. It was still just file edit, uh, maybe, you know, whatever and about, but when you clicked into those menus, then maybe Maybe there would be different options depending on what you were using. If it was a word processor, maybe there were um, some some formatting options for your text, whether it was on the left or the right, you know, right justified and so on. But if it was a graphic application, then maybe there would be uh, options of, uh, of setting your canvas size or whatever. So I have a feeling that the global menu, this this unified menu along the top probably didn't, it, it probably was not that different. It was probably very small changes between the two applications. And I always used to think that this was the the most brilliant design scheme ever. And I've gone on about this before, so I won't, I won't belabor this point. But I, I really did, I sincerely thought that the global menu bar was the correct way to do it because you preserved vertical space. It just made more sense for, in my view, for there to be one menu, because you can only, you can only have one application open at, a, or uh, in focus at a time. You, you, you only have one mouse, you can't control more than one application at a time. It just didn't make sense. So I, I just figured it made more sense to have a global menu bar that was pertinent to whatever you were actually using at the moment. Now what I underestimated through lack of experience was that you could have two applications open on your screen and yeah one isn't active but you can still see its menu selections or its top level menu and then you can go over to that menu and select that menu and in so selecting it you are also making that application the active application so you're doing two actions at once by clicking on the menu that's one click and then you're you get a free click for bringing that application into focus as it were making it the active thing global menu you can't do that right if if you want to click on that other applications menu you have to first click on the application to make it active, then you have to move your mouse up to the global menu bar and then click on the menu that you wanted to click. That's two clicks and a mouse move where a mouse move in one click would have, well, so two mouse moves really because you have to make the application active, click, move, click, and so on. So yeah, that's a, that's basically twice twice the amount of work. 
So I have since very much backpedaled and reversed my position on this. But I'm telling you, I was seriously, seriously on Team Global Menu for like a good, probably, let's just randomly say 10 years. That might be, no, it's probably correct, about 10 years. So anyway, yes, I was very much sold on that idea. This brings it finally to, to the, bla- uh, the Plasma desktop. And you can, you can have it too if you want. Right click on your desktop, add widget. Do a search really quick for global, or glob, global menu, and there it is. You can just drag that wherever you want it. Uh, you'd probably want it as part of your kicker, probably, but maybe you'd want a, a separate kicker at the top of your screen or something. It's your choice, obviously. Um, and, and, and through G menu, G bus, G D bus proxy menu, you, uh, menu proxy, you get, um, you get your this this widget receives all of the sort of notifications from applications that are being launched about what should get populated in that menu bar up at the top and when that act when that becomes the active application then the menu chain the menu selections change and then when it goes back to being you know something else becomes the active one then it it goes you know it changes again and so on so it is it's everything i wanted 15 years ago, and now I don't want to touch it. I will I will likely never use that option, ever. But it is very cool that it's there, and I hope that people migrating from macOS are happy to try that and enjoy that functionality. There's no two ways about it. Like when you're when you're switching to a different OS, it's going to be different no matter what. But but those little things, those little features that they kind of throw at you to, to try to ease that transition, it it's really appreciated. So I I really do I, I can I can appreciate this now from afar, and I would have really appreciated it way back when. There there were modules back then that that did this like for KDE 3 even there was a widget that that did it it just i remember it not being 100% like perfect like some applications wouldn't wouldn't correctly populate the menu or something you know it, there was something weird about it um anyway next up is KCM init this is the uh, KDE we we know KCMs right these are the KDE configuration modules well the the help menu for KCM init bizarrely claims that it is the uh, it, its purpose is to run startup initialization for control modules, which is interesting because every other documentation that I've ever seen says configuration. In fact, even this configure even this documentation says configuration because at the bottom of the of the little menu, the help menu here, it says arguments module configuration module or con- configuration module to run. So it's it's using two two different terms for the same thing. That's fine, doesn't matter. So KCM init some options and then the name of a module. And those options are, as their name suggests, optional. So we need a, a KCM to 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 try, and that that's where it gets a little bit difficult, to be honest. Um, so you can look at, at, at what KCM modules are currently set to launch uh, at startup or, or the, that are set to run at startup uh, by doing KCM init dash dash list. Uh, my system has KCM underscore style, mouse, KCM underscore touchpad. I don't know why that, I, I could probably deactivate that to be honest. I don't, I don't have a touchpad on my desktop. And K gamma. All right, so where do those come from? What are these? KCM init files okay so well kcm init is um it this i mean in this case it is a a command we know that but so and and we could do like file user bin kcm init and it confirms that it's like a real a real application like you know it's like one of those compiled executables elf 64 bit that kind of thing so this is an application that that is installed but the other what what it's kind of referring to what it's what it's yeah what it's referring to is a function a specific function within KDE the the KDE framework called KCM init uh, underscore whatever and there I think there's I'm forgetting now are there a couple of them or or are you meant to name your own function that so that yeah I forget but it's it's named for this this concept of a KCM init process so for instance well so backing up then wh- where are these KCM things um that that's a good question but uh it is answered with good old K services I've been talking about K services now I think for the past like four episodes or something uh, they've they've gotten a mention it seems so 
K services are those little things on your desktop that that add functionality. And I mean, you kind of get a sense for it. The KCM underscore style, the K gamma, KCM underscore touchpad, mouse. The, these are things that that are configuration options or or configuration control panel. Yeah, control panels that you can control to affect your environment. The other form that a KCM can can take is a right an option in a right click menu which we did a couple of episodes ago now. So that's what they that's where they sort of hang out, that's what they are. You can install them locally, but I have a feeling probably we'll find more uh, system wide than than local. So do it ls on slash user share k services 5. Yep. And there's a bunch of KCM modules there. And you can recognize them because they all start with KCM um, underscore. A couple of them just are KCM and don't get the underscore. Not really sure why. But um, yeah, there's a bunch of them there. Um, there's K service types I just now noticed. And I wonder what that is. Uh, doesn't That doesn't look super useful. I could be wrong, but it doesn't look useful to me. Okay, so anyway, KCM init, uh, it said we had to give some, where we could give some options, and and the required argument was a module name. So there's a bunch of different KCM options, or, you know, like, things to choose from here. Uh, here's KCM underscore CPU dot desktop. That seems harmless. So I'm going to type in KCM under no, KCM init space, KCM underscore CPU, and press return and see what happens. Ah, module KCM underscore CPU does not actually have a KCM init function. And that's what I was talking about, like that function in the code. I mean, if you looked at the source code of a lot of the KCM things, you'd, you'd see that certain ones of them had like a KCM um, init function. Uh, so let's try a different one really quick. How about uh, KCM underscore icons? No, no, nothing there. I've, I kind of have a feeling that maybe, maybe I'm already running the ones that require running. Activities? That's got to have an init. Activities? That's got to have an init function. No, it does not. Okay, yeah. So I can't find a KCM init or a, a KCM with a KCM init module outside of the ones that are already running, which, you know, K gamma, K, uh, KCM touchpad, and so on. So anyway, if you needed to launch a KCM, or, or rather an, run the initialization function of a KCM, because maybe you were developing one, then this tool would be very useful to you. I realized that that was a long way around to 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 get to that to to get that statement, but I just I I do feel like it's kind of interesting to understand that um that that these modules can be started and and uh, tested from a terminal. Now, there's also a startup, just a straight up startup t- command for KCM init. Uh, it's KCM init underscore startup. It is also in this package. It's the next one in the package. And so if there was something that uh, you needed to start, then then this would be this would be the thing to do. So again, maybe you're writing a KCM and you need to test it. Well, this would be a, a great way to get that started, to, to actually start your uh, module in case you had just had to shut it down for some reason because maybe you needed to make some changes to the code. Now you've recompiled, you've put it in the right place, KCM init underscore startup. Now it's back. All right. So that's, um, well, actually, let's see if there's the, what is it, Dolphin, KCM Dolphin something. I'm just curious as to whether that would do anything with the startup. Dolphin General. K- KCM Dolphin General. All one, all one string. No, it doesn't look like it. Okay. I, I thought that was probably not. I mean, it's, it's you know, f- fact is that most of these things are, are likely already running because uh, I have a desktop up and running. So it's it's probably not very useful to me. But yeah, it's good to know. Okay, let's talk about the next one, which is user bin K color scheme editor. I realized that at the beginning of this episode, I said, this is so cool. This, these are all the things that you would ever want to, um, th- these are the things that you think of when you think of a desktop. And so far, none of these have been the things that you think of as a desktop. Trust me, it, it, we're getting to the ones that I, that had me excited eventually. So K color scheme editor is a command. It's it, it it launches a GUI application, um, and I I know I've seen these options before, 
but not in this configuration. So I have a feeling this is probably invoking some KCM or some K part or something that shows up elsewhere. I, I, I know I've seen this before. I just can't find in the system settings where it is, but it is the K color scheme editor. It will, it will look at your current, uh, theme which in my case is breeze dark, apparently. And uh, it, it, it gives you all the different, it shows you every single, every color, like v, the, the view background. So that's the sort of the backdrop of, of, my, of my main windows. Uh, view text, it's white. Window background, oh, that's the, no, that's the background. So the, the view background is, are the field, the, the fields, like text fields, things like that. Uh, window background are sort of like the, 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 panels around a field. Uh, window text is white still, button background is the same as the window background, button text, white, selection background, kind of a blue, and so on. And it just goes on and on like that. I mean, everything, visited text, negative text, neutral text, positive text, focus decoration. So if you've got like, if, if you have an idea for uh, a, co a color scheme that, and you don't like like the default, you can go through here and just absolutely design, re redesign the way that your, your, your desktop delivers information, which is great. Um, there's a couple of other options like apply the effects to inactive windows or uh, require them essentially to be relaunched. Um, the contrast level, different, uh, use different colors for uh, inactive selections versus just keeping everything the same, uh, which, you know, in one, on one hand you might like because then it kind of desaturates the thing that's not active and sort of visual focuses you on the active application. Or maybe you don't like that because that reduces visibility. Maybe you can't see it when it goes desaturated. You don't like that. So you can turn that function off. So that's K color scheme editor. Next up is KDE-systemD-start condition. That's um, probably not all that applicable to us on Slackware. I'm going to, I'm going to guess as I close my terminal on accident. Um, it says that uh, it checks the start condition for a KDE systemD service. Well, that, that, never succeeds on, on my Slackware install, although you could have it succeed. I, I knew someone who installed systemd on their Slackware system, so it can be done, uh, but I'm not going to do it anytime soon. So let's see, next up is, why am I in a search function here? Control G, there we go. Uh, K font inst. If you've ever installed a font on, on the Plasma desktop wh while using the Plasma desktop, you'll know that uh, you can click on a font file, like a TTF or an OTF, and it pops up into a, uh, a font viewer. And you can look at all the glyphs and decide whether you like that font or not, and then click install, and it asks you whether you want to install it to your personal, like your local directory, or the whole system so that all users have access to it. I, I generally do it to my personal um, folders because that way, when I, it, it should I need to reinstall Slackware at some point, or you know, I'm, I'm transporting uh, my user directory to another computer, uh, then I have all my fonts with me, which is really important. Font, I, I still feel font management is, is not where it needs to be in modern computing, really really. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's great on Linux, but, but even then it could be better, like when you're transferring files back and forth, like it's just, there needs to be a better way. And I, it may not even be a technological thing. It might just be a cultural thing. Anyway, I digress. You can install it locally. You can install it to your system. It's all very easy. It's a couple of clicks. Really nice. Now, the thing that kfontviewer invokes is kfontinst, and you can skip past the font viewing part of this process and just go straight to, to, to kfontinst by just using the command. So kfontinst, and then uh, the path to the directory containing all of the fonts that you want to install, and then some wild card to encompass all of them. TTF and OTF are the two font uh, types that I deal with mostly. So I would just do um, asterisk TF because I know all of my fonts are going to end in something TF. Now, if you are using other kinds of fonts, and I, I do, I can, I can think of a couple of other kinds. I can't think of their file extensions though. If you are though, I guess technically um, that that might not work for you. That that particular globbing effect. But whatever, you get the, the point. The, the point is that you, you point it to a bunch of font files. You press return, and you get the little dialog 
box and it asks you that that you get when you after you've viewed a font in k font viewer and decided that yes you want to install it so it's asking you do you want to install the font or fonts for personal use only available to you or system-wide available to all users you can make your choice at that point i'm going to click cancel because all these fonts are actually already installed and it will install the fonts that you have specified to the location that you have specified could potentially be a lot easier should you need to install rather than just one or two font files say 10 or 100 so that's something to do now actually in truth what i've done is i just have a alias from um, tilde slash dot fonts that's an alias that points to tilde slash dot local share fonts. Um, and you could even skip the alias, honestly, if you wanted, and just put your font files into dot local share fonts. Now, the, the problem there is, though, that, that that folder is organized by first letter of the name of the font. So if you're doing, again, like 100 fonts, which, you know, I mean, maybe some, some people don't do that, but, uh, you know, certainly... A lot of people do um, because fonts are generally considered sort of a creative outlet. So if you have a bunch of fonts or if you're at a design, um, you know, you're doing design work or something, you just want choices, uh, you, you may have 100 fonts or more to install and you don't want to have to go through and do. I mean, at best case scenario then is that you're doing maybe... Well, best case is that all of your fonts start with an A or something like that. But I mean, you know, generally you could think, well, you'll have to do, you'll have to glob 26 groups of fonts, A through Z, and then, you know, you wouldn't want to do that. So just K font inst, it does it all for you, speeds things way, way up. It's friend, of course, I've already mentioned K font view. And that's a wonderful, simple little application that launches a window. I mean, if you give it no path, then it launches an empty window. But if you give it a path to a font, it shows that font to you. It, it sort of unpacks that font, shows you all the glyphs, lets you do preview text, really gives you a pretty good feel for that font. And and like I say, if if you like what you see, you can click the install button in the bottom right. That invokes kfontinst and you're away. Now, after coffee, because it is time for coffee right now, we're going to talk about some of your favorite, some of my favorite, some of all of our favorites applications, including Clipper and KRunner. And those are, the, that's it. I mean, we'll probably talk about more, but those are the two really exciting ones that caused me, when I saw this package, to say, this is it. This is the desktop. Like, this is the part that the desktop is. I realize I may have overstated the, the all-encompassing nature of this package, but trust me, there's more. There's like Plasma Apply Color Scheme, Plasma Apply Theme, Plasma Apply Desktop Theme, Look and Feel, Wallpaper, Image, all kinds of things that, again, I, I do. I, I think arguably the, these are a lot of the things that we think of when we think of a desktop, even if we're not even if they're not the visual components, because what is a desktop? Well, it's a blank screen with some widgets that do something like sh sh tell you the time and let you choose your network and a dolphin window or a file manager window. That's the desktop, right? Oh, and an application menu of some sort, a launcher of some sort. That's a desktop. I mean, and, and a lot of that is here. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Okay, let's go get some coffee. We'll come back. We'll talk about these exciting applications. <laughs> Welcome back. I've got coffee. It is an unholy mix of coffee left over from this morning and coffee freshly brewed in my mocha pot on my stove. And I just kind of threw everything together in a cup, poured in some boiling water for good measure, poured in some a little bit of milk, and that's what I'm drinking right now. So that's fine. It's actually quite good, but um, it, it is not the it's not the purest cup of coffee you'll you'll ever see. Um, all right, so so the the next application is Clipper, K L I P P E R. This is one of my favorite applications. Uh, I use it on on everything. I use it on KDE. I use it on Fluxbox. That's it. But I mean, 
if if I don't use specifically Clipper, then I use something like it on on GNOME on my laptop. There's a there's a hack out there to actually enable a useful function like like a clipboard manager uh, on XFCE. I'm imagining they have this. I don't know. I haven't been using it lately. I'm supposed to be using it. I keep forgetting. Um, so Clipper, it is a clipboard manager, and if you don't know what that is, then you're missing out. And I didn't know what that was for the, the first good portion of my life. I had no idea, I had no concept that you could have a clipboard where you copy and paste things to and from, respectively, that contained more than one item. I think the very concept of that would have probably blown my mind, probably would have confused me at one point in my life, because I was a little bit slow on the uptake sometimes, and then probably would have just blown my mind, which is what it did when I finally saw it. Um, I don't remember, I, I, it's one of those things where it's so outside of your comprehension, at least when I found out about it, I immediately took to it. Like, it took me no time at all. I just thought, I get it. Like, I see why this is useful. And so Clipper, if you have it started and running, and, and I think by default it is, I have it always on, um, and always visible in my system tray. So it sits up in your system tray, it looks like a little notepad uh, clipboard, um, and I have it set, I think, to remember the latest, oh geez, a lot more than I thought, maybe 20 entries. So everything I copy on Linux, if I select something, right click and say copy, then it shows up in Clipper as the most recent thing that I have copied. So that's at the top of the stack. And so if I go to some other window and press Control V or Control Shift V, if that's more appropriate for the window, uh, for like a terminal, um, then I get the top of the stack. Whatever's at the top of the, the stack in Clipper, that's what I, I get out on, on my terminal. And and I can continue to do that. Control V, Control V, Control V, or rather Shift Control V a bunch of times and it just keeps pasting in the same exact th thing. There it it doesn't it doesn't change, it doesn't waver from that top of the stack. To change your sort of active, you know, to make something else float to the top of that stack, you click on clipper. You look through, you scroll through, it's like a little menu almost, of, well, it is a menu. Um, here's an old thing that I installed, uh, that I copied, remember when we were talking about user bin KCM init? Well, I had that in my clipboard all along. So I could now control shift V, and now that's in my terminal. Control shift V, it's in my terminal again. Do it as many times as I want. At, at this point, that selection, because I chose it, has been moved to the top of the clipper stack. And that's what Clipper does. So, so you can go through a process, uh, and I do this a lot actually. You could go through and, and maybe you see three different things that you need to copy. You don't want to transcribe it. You just want to copy it, but isn't it a pain to copy, switch to application, paste, switch back to the other application, copy, select the new thing, copy, select, go, go back to the other application, paste, go back to the original, and so on. That's not how you want to spend your life, trust me. So what you do is you select the first thing, let's call it foo, and then you, you, you right-click, copy. The next thing, let's call it bar, right-click, copy. The next thing, let's call it baz, copy. All right, now we've just copied three things. What's at the top of the stack? Uh, foobar baz. Oh, baz, because that's the latest one that I that I uh, copied. Okay, so I can go to my my destination now to my other document, and I can click or I can hit Control or uh, Control V for if I'm just doing like a text edit, uh, text editor like K write. Uh, Control V. There's baz. Okay, well now I want to get to the next one, so I'm going to go up to Clipper, click on it, go to uh, bar paste that. Okay, cool. Now up to Clipper again, go to Foo, and Control V, paste that in. So now I've got Baz, Bar, Foo. Or, or I could have done that in a different order, I could have chosen a different line, you know, whatever. Point is, you had access to all those things historically that you'd copied, which is really, really handy sometimes, uh, for, for lots of different reasons. I mean, sometimes you just, you copy something once, and then you you forget that you've got that sort of hanging out in your clipboard and you accidentally copy something over it. Doesn't matter the clipper. It'll remember it up to, you know, however many, how, whatever history you want. Do you feel weird about your history, like, sort of gathering forever? Not a problem. Click on clipper, uh, click the little broom icon for clear history, and your history is gone. Now, if you click on clipper, everything that you had in it is is gone. And, and and you you have sort of a fresh start. Now, I will admit, going to Clipper all the time 
is a, is a lot of work, right? That's a lot of mouse moving. Like, you might as well just go back to the original application at that point. Well, you don't have to go back to Clipper. You can set up a keyboard shortcut for Clipper. So if you right-click on the Clipper icon, it might not, if you did j just clear it, then it won't, it might not be there because um, the way that at least I have my system tray is that if there's nothing in Clipper, it, it it doesn't show up. It, it disappears. That doesn't usually happen because I always have something in there, but okay, now I've got something in there. I've copied it. Now I've, I see the clipper icon, right click on it in my system tray, configure clipboard, and I can choose to um, do a couple of things like shortcuts. Lots of, of useful shortcuts here. There's clear clipboard history, I guess, if you need that like at the touch of a key. Configure clipper. Uh, I don't need that all the time. Edit contents. That's cool. You can actually so after you've copied something, you can edit the entry as it appears in Clipper. I, I think I've done that like maybe once, but is it cool? You know, like you don't usually have access to your clipboard. You just copy stuff to it and it's just floating out there out of your reach until you paste it back in. And then there it is. But yeah, you can, you could edit the contents of your clipboard now. Enable clipboard actions. I guess that's there. Uh, the one I'm looking for is open clipper at mouse position. This is it's just so cool. This is so useful. So. I've got that set to control, uh, uh, I actually have to press it to know. Ah, it's alt control V is what I have it set to. Um, so when I am in any application, as long as my mouse is there, uh, alt shift, uh, alt control V for me, you can set it to whatever you want. That brings up a pop-up window around my mouse and I can choose what I want to paste in. So I can choose what gets to the top of the stack. It's so nice. So you don't even have to go all the way up to the clipper icon. It's convenient to have the icon up there, but you can just make it appear right at your mouse position. And then you can choose what you want to go to the top of the stack and then control V. Really, really nice. It's a, a brilliant application. Love it. Okay, next up is K Runner. This used to be my daily driver. I mean, this was the only interface I used for everything. Fluxbox, Plasma Desktop, that's it. And and it's a great little application. You can get to it by default. I think it's Alt-F2. Um, and that brings up a little search bar at the top of your screen, or somewhere on your screen. I think it's at the top of your screen by default. And you can search for things like Dolphin. And, oh, Dolphin. Fin. There we go. Uh, and it knows that the application Dolphin File, uh, the Dolphin File Manager is available uh, for launch. You, you have that on your system. It matches your search query. You can do that. Now, it also searches potentially recent files. So if you've taken screenshots of Dolphin and named them Dolphin, or if you've written an article uh, about Dolphin lately and named it Dolphin.adoc, that appears. Uh, it also might know that it's a system setting, locations for personal files, and default applications. Bo both of those apparently mention Dolphin. So a lot of information, maybe more than you need, maybe not, the one that floats to the top is the default one. So if I just press return, then Dolphin launches. Easy as that. And that's that was kind of my my use case for it mostly. I use I, I generally used it as an application launcher. And and I did that because at the time the KDE, the default KDE desktop, yeah, it was called the KDE desktop back then. Uh, the the default menu was was not I don't even think it had a search bar, I think. It wasn't until um uh, Camelot, I think is what it was called. Is that right? Camelot or, or Grail? No, it was Camelot, surely. Um, great alternate uh, application menu uh, by Ivan Kuchik. And uh, it was just such a good little search menu. And I, I guess it must have become kind of the default because I look at the new one and it, it very much feels like uh, whatever this one was called, Camelot, I think. I can't believe I've forgotten the name of that thing. I used to, I mean, it was my, it was one of those things that I would install right away. But anyway, um, so I, I really do actually just use that now. But KRunner has a lot more, and it probably, it, it if it suits your use case, it, it actually might be the better option. Although again, I'll be honest, the KDE uh, menu, the, the, K, the K menu, has a lot of this the same stuff integrated into it, so you still may not use K Runner like as a as a 
specifically as a thing. Uh, the nice thing about KRunner, though, is that it's just a search bar. So if you don't want the visual clutter of a big old application window taking up like a quarter of your screen with a bunch of icons and favorite categories and recent categories and all that, KRunner is minimal. It is a search bar and maybe three buttons, one for configuration and one to clear, something like that. That's two buttons. Um, so anyway, KRunner, if you go to the system setting or the, the settings, it opens up system settings to a KCM thing for KRunner. And you've got a lot of plugins. There's activities, so you can switch between desktop activities through KRunner. There's applications. You can find and launch applications and control panels and services. There are bookmarks, uh, browser history, browser tabs. I don't have any of those things. Bookmarks, browser, browser, don't have those activated. Calculator, this is brilliant. Alt F2 uh, equals 5 plus 5. Well, it tells me 10. That's the solution right there. And it shows you what plugin it's using. There's a... Um, Command line, you can execute a terminal command from KRunner. So if I just type in, I guess, top, then the top, uh, well, maybe that was a, a bad, a bad choice. Uh, how about K font view? The top, top result is command line run K font view. So I could just run that command from, from there. So it's, it's almost like a Yaquake kind of drop down terminal, except it's not because it's just going to run the command. It's it's not gonna it's not gonna become like your it's not gonna show you your output in in K Runner or anything. But but that will get you started. And it does. I mean, like if I do uh, run a command, it, it does open up a um, a new console instance. So it it doesn't just run the command and then disappear. It it, it does it does the thing that gives you the output that you require or that you that you want. Date and time, you can apparently get the current date and time. I've never really done that. Desktop search, so that ties into what is it now? Baloo, is that the one? We talked about it a long time ago now probably. Uh, searches through your files and your emails and your contacts and things like that. Desktop desktop session. So if you uh, are on a multi-user system, you want to switch users quickly, you can toggle between them through KRunner. Dictionary, it will define words for you. Will it really though? Let's try. What's a good word? Conflagration. Doesn't know that word apparently because it doesn't give me a definition. There you go. Uh, Kate sessions, you know, and the list goes on and on. I mean, we're just in the K and, and it goes on to Z. There's a, a literally a Z. So yeah, there's quite a lot. There's a spell checker apparently. Again, I'm not so sure about that. Um, special characters. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch. So KRunner, very, very powerful. It's a great application. I, it is one of the applications that sort of, well, it's not the application. The the application was a Mac OS specific application called Quicksilver. That was the thing that, in, that introduced me to the concept of being able to simply press a button and type in what you want your computer to do. That was, before I knew that terminals existed, Quicksilver was my main interface to my then current OS. And I was the most powerful of power users because of that. I mean, people just were in awe of the way I interacted with the computer. I felt on top of the world. And of course, Linux users were like light years ahead of me. Um, but when I, when I found Linux and migrated over to it, discovering KRunner was like getting some of my powers back. You know, because you have to start over when you switch, right? You're you're an idiot again. You don't know what you're doing on Linux. You're you're the new guy now. So finding KRunner was was getting a little bit of my power of just being able to like launch the applications that I wanted quickly back. I mean, the the exhilaration didn't last long because I discovered so many other ways to do so many things quickly that that it, it almost felt like yeah, that's. That's kind of pedestrian, but at least I was starting out where I had left off. At least I had that visual interface, uh, bare, barely a visual interface of, of, yes, I can launch an application quickly. That's probably as far down this list I'm going to get today, realistically. So let's stop there, but let's take some listener feedback really quick. I know I usually do this out of, uh, after the coffee break, but I was just so excited about all the KDE applications that I couldn't couldn't slow down. But um, HackerDefo emailed me or uh, contacted me on Mastodon, uh, mastodon.xyz uh, slash at, mm, what am I, at Clatu, mm, at Clatu. So mastodon.xyz slash at Clatu. Um, he contacted me, HackerDefo did, and said that um, 
in regards to OpenAI, because if you'll recall a couple of episodes ago, I was confused, I was, I was complaining about that name. Uh, and HackerDefo says OpenAI began its journey as a nonprofit artificial intelligence research company in late 2015. Maybe that's why the open is there. And linked to, uh, and, and, uh, an article about this on OpenAI, uh, introducing OpenAI. OpenAI is a nonprofit artificial intelligence research company. Our goal is to advance digital intelligence in the way that is most likely to benefit humanity as a whole, unconstrained by the need to re- generate financial return. Uh, research is free from financial obligations, so we can focus on human impact. Um, it's, it's kind of, yeah, this is, possibly potentially interesting i i uh hacker Def of just today linked me to an interview with one of the founders which could be an interesting listen i, I think i mean I'll, I'll have to listen to that interview but i mean from their introduction page here i i still believe that the the term open in this context is being abused uh people have expectation based on some industry-wide definitions and i realize these are just definitions uh, opensource.org uh, has a definition of open source and it, it it has declared that that's the meaning of open source and you know that would just be one group of people declaring that that's what it means except that the entire industry generally uh, accepts that that that's what that means and that an open license is defined by these things so open everything open culture open licenses open source open stuff is kind of like bound by these definitions and open ai is using explicitly the word open with no sign on their history page or on their explanation of how any of their work is open um except for this one sentence which i mean i'm being very generous here uh it says researchers will be it's in the future, so you don't know really when that will be, but apparently at some point in the future, researchers will be strongly encouraged. Not just encouraged, they'll be strongly encouraged. I don't know what the difference between encouraged and strongly encouraged, but it's it's an adjective, or is that an adverb? That's an adverb, uh, in front of a verb, so it must be true, to publish their work, whether as papers, blog posts, or code, and our patents, if any, will be shared with the world. So there you go. That's that's the promise that OpenAI are making, and I'm not really sure what that promise means in any way. Um, it just, it, it sounds like a corporate statement of good intention, uh, and those statements don't actually require any follow-through. So call me skeptical, but from what I'm reading here, this doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of open anything going on. Uh, in fact, if anything, it sounds like they're very much closed with private investors, um, therefore with no requisite to generate income, which is fine, I don't mind that, but it, that doesn't mean they're open, it just means that they don't have to report on their spending, or, or maybe they report to someone, but they don't have to produce a profit. Um, that doesn't really mean anything, really, that's just, all that means to me is that, um, is that they're doing things, and they have acquired funding, like, there are a bunch of scientists who have required who have acquired funding that's not open really that's just that's that's what that's you know that's just being a nonprofit and nonprofit in itself is not a virtue i mean it, it it's it's a nice to have but um then again like you can be nonprofit and not be beneficial to anything or anyone um and again a lot of these statements on this page open ai is a nonprofit research, artificial intelligence research company, our goal is to advance digital intelligence in the way that is most likely to benefit humanity as a whole. That, that doesn't say anything to me. That is, that is very much corporate speak. I mean, that is, that is the exact same thing that you would hear if you go to any company, really, they, most any company, they will, they will always lately claim to be working for the betterment of society and for humanity and for for surprising and delighting their customers and so on that doesn't really mean anything the 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 main difference here that i can see is that these that open ai does not need to generate a profit that's their big selling point i guess and that doesn't really have anything to do with open anything so highly highly skeptical about that and um good information though because i i I didn't think to sort of delve into the origin story i really kind of assumed it was some kind of uh company who had just adopted the term open for um for the press for the for the goodwill uh which which places do sometimes they they just adopt it to 
to kind of sidle up to the open source community and to like make people who have heard that open something or another is supposed to be good so i guess if this one this one calls itself open too so i guess that's probably good um i don't know i i'm i think i'm higher i'm more suspicious of places that do that than places that um never make the promise to be open because uh this is this is a little bit seem this is deceitful right this is this is positioning yourself intentionally as something that you are not now if should they actually follow through on on their promise which actually again not not really a promise i mean they they apparently will in the future encourage someone to publish something in some form and if they ever have a patent they ever bother opening a patent they'll share it with the world whatever that means so i i don't even know what that means so yeah not impressed. Not impressed with OpenAI so far. Um, from from a very far armchair length away. I mean, really, completely. You know, this is. I've I've read one page about OpenAI on their own page. I don't know anything really about them, but. I'm not super impressed. So anyway, thanks Hacker Defo for the information and for the context. I think uh, sometimes I forget to just kind of go to someone's page and open up. You know, the, the same the do, same due diligence that I do when I have source code to look at. I try to go to the source code and look at the source. Uh, I think sometimes when I don't have the source code, I just kind of I just write it off. Like, well, no investigation can be done. Well, sometimes you can. You can go to the site. You can read what they say about themselves at least. Um, you can see some of their investors. Lots of names on there that I don't love. So, yeah, interesting, but something I will I will definitely um keep a, a, a rather cautious view of until they until they prove otherwise. I think that's it for this episode though. Thanks for listening. Next time we'll dive right back into the plasma workspace for more exciting plasma applications that you don't see but you do see eventually, right? That they these are building your desktop. It's very exciting. We'll talk about it next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open